Lawmakers returned to Capitol Hill today with just four days to go before a government shutdown if Republicans can't agree on a budget deal. It's Tuesday, September 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden heads to Michigan today to join striking union auto workers on the picket lines. Also, the legal challenge to Florida's new congressional map that one voting rights group says targets black voters. Plus, the program in Maine that lets schools financially assist families with rent and other expenses. And this hour. As they're going through the dark, basically you see what's in the headlights, which turns out to be many thousands of octopuses. The startling discovery made off the coast of California what's being called a real-life octopus garden. Cloudy with a chance for showers today in the 60s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is scheduling votes today on government funding packages. The federal government will shut down this weekend if Congress doesn't pass them. But a small group of hardline House Republicans is blocking them, demanding even deeper spending cuts. McCarthy criticized members of his own party, saying forcing a government shutdown won't achieve their policy goals. My whole focus, what's in my mind, what drives me, is the American people. And right now what I see is a border that's wide open, the fentanyl coming across, killing and poisoning 300 Americans every single day. An administration will do nothing about it. One of the immediate effects, or rather effects, of any shutdown would be cuts to a major food program for pregnant and breastfeeding mothers and children. President Biden will travel to Michigan today to walk a picket line with members of the United Auto Workers. It's the 12th day of their strike against the big three U.S. automakers. Biden is urging the automakers to offer more concessions to the UAW in contract talks. Meanwhile, the Canadian Auto Workers Union is preparing to negotiate with GM. Dan Karpinchuk reports members of the Canadian union, Unifor, just ratified a contract with Ford Canada. Unifor President Lana Payne says her expectation is that General Motors will follow the pattern set at Ford. She says Unifor has more leverage with GM than with Stellantis. The automaker's plant in Oshawa, east of Toronto, is churning out pickup trucks, and the propulsion plant in St. Catharines has also become a key supplier in GM's Canadian operations. Unifor will likely aim for key wage bumps of 20 to 25 percent, as well as bonuses and improvements to benefits, much like it did with Ford. But there could also be pushback from union members. Only 54 percent of them voted for the Ford deal. The negotiations come as more than 13,000 UAW members are on strike in the U.S., and they're demanding a lot more than their Canadian counterparts. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is in California this week, and he will participate in tomorrow's Republican presidential debate. But in Florida, NPR's Greg Allen reports a federal court hearing will get underway on a congressional map DeSantis supports, although critics say it's unconstitutional. DeSantis surprised fellow Republicans in the state legislature last year when he took charge of the once-a-decade process of redrawing congressional district maps, vetoing their maps and essentially forcing them to approve his. DeSantis's map eliminated a congressional district in North Florida that for decades had been drawn to preserve the ability of black voters to elect a representative of their choice. Voting rights groups say the map violates constitutional guarantees of black Floridians that their votes won't be denied or abridged on account of their race. A state judge has already ruled that DeSantis's congressional map violates the state constitution and has ordered it redrawn. DeSantis' administration has appealed that decision. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Maura Healey will create a new Clean Energy Infrastructure Commission today. The group's goal will be to streamline the process to create renewable energy sources in the state. Environmental activists and utilities say that'll be the key in helping the state reach its goals in fighting climate change. Healey was in Quebec yesterday meeting with counterparts from across New England and eastern Canada. She says the group met to align their goals around building green infrastructure. The climate, of course, doesn't recognize state boundaries, international borders, or political parties. That, coupled with the fact that all of our energy systems are so interconnected, we absolutely must work together. The group has committed to reducing its greenhouse gas emissions to zero by 2050. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she doesn't see a path forward on a community proposal to build a recovery campus at Wadette Circle. The plan was introduced last month by some business owners. They say it would address crime and drug use around the intersection of Melnia Cass Boulevard and Massachusetts Avenue. But while speaking with WBUR's Radio Boston yesterday, Wu said the plan faces several hurdles. That includes the fact the land is owned by the MBTA. It's not land that we have control over. We don't have funding allocated. And it's an incredible effort by community members who have been really experiencing the impacts to to take on and propose solutions. But it was not formed with significant public health expertise guiding that. Wu says she remains open to hearing ideas to connect people to resources. The MBTA already has plans to use the property as a train yard for its commuter rail. The Foxborough School Committee will hear public testimony tonight about the town's use of a Native American logo. The Warriors logo and its Native American imagery is used for sports teams at town schools. A group of high schoolers filed a petition to change that. Dennis Naughton is a retired educator from Foxborough. He says residents are divided on the issue. I believe that what Native Americans choose to believe is offensive to them is what should drive this decision. It's not what other people think Native Americans should think based on conversations with individuals. The school committee is expected to make a final decision by next week. Boston is making the bike and bus lane along Huntington Avenue a permanent one. It was installed between Brigham Circle and Gainsborough Street last year during the Orange Line shutdown. City transit officials say the new permanent lanes will be in place by the next few weeks. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. What happens when fashion designers and scientists work together? Find out this Saturday when Boston Fashion Week teams up with Cambridge Science Festival to bring you the future of fashion, workshops, demonstrations, and a breathtaking runway experience. CambridgeScienceFestival.org. The Red Sox begin their final home series of the season tonight. They'll host the Tampa Bay Rays. Cloudy with a slight chance for showers this morning. It'll be in the lower 60s, partly cloudy overnight and down to the 40s, mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-60s. It should stay dry through the weekend. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. President Biden heads to Detroit today to support striking auto workers. Biden has called himself the most pro-union president in history, but his administration is also trying to work with car companies on climate goals and other priorities. So how is he going to walk that line? And is he going to walk on a picket line? Let's ask NPR political correspondent Don Gagne, who joins us from his home in Detroit. Hey there, Don. Good morning. What's the president doing so far as you know? We don't know exactly what the drill will be. We do know he will be on a picket line. We know that much, but there are a lot of questions. Will he march with a placard? Will it be more of a meet and greet with workers filing past him? We do know that UAW President Sean Fain will be there. He invited Biden to come, and I'll just add, he did so despite the fact that the UAW has not yet endorsed Biden for re-election. Just yesterday at the White House. Biden was asked about the trip. Here's his answer. I think the UAW gave up an incredible amount back when the automobile industry was going under. They gave everything from their pensions on. And I think that now that the industry is roaring back, they should participate in the benefit of that. I just want to know, Don, I looked this up. Uh, President of the United States is not a union job. It'd be a very small union uh, if it was a union job. Is it rare for a president to stand on a picket line? Uh, Careful listeners may know I've been covering the UAW for a long time. <laughs> I'm right? a careful listener. Yes, I do know. Go on. I, I've not seen anything like this. I've seen presidential candidates, candidates greeting striking workers. I've toured factories with candidates. I've gone to union halls and picket lines with senators and other state and federal police officers. But we can't find any record of a U.S. president visiting a picket line, talking to striking workers there. So that alone makes this a big moment, right? For the UAW and for all unions, really, picket lines are hugely symbolic. It means something to have a president actually show up. Is he really involved in the negotiations, though? Uh, He has kept open lines of communication with the auto companies, according to the White House. But this is the job of the negotiators, not the president, to find a deal. It's a balancing act. He wants unions to get good contracts, but he also wants these companies to be able to lead the world in electric vehicle production. So that's a big challenge. There's also a partisan contrast here because Donald Trump is going to be heading to Michigan before long. And I want to ask about that, uh, Don. Uh, I've been reading this book by David Leonhardt called Ours Was the Shining Future. It's like a history of the American middle class in the 20th century. Uh, And it talks about the 1930s when there was a president of Congress who supported and fostered the union movement. There was a big auto workers strike that was a big part of that. So that's my question now. If Biden is pro-union, as he says, has he been able to actively make the environment easier for unions? Those were the 1936-37 sit-down strikes in Flint, Michigan, a seminal moment for labor. Roosevelt was a huge help back then to the UAW. Biden has changed the environment for unions. Uh, The NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, is much friendlier to unions. Uh, Biden also supports something called the PRO Act, which is called Protect the Right to Organize. That's big for labor. And Republicans in the past always support so-called right-to-work laws in states. Biden has opposed them. So he has indeed been a friend, if not perfect. NPR's Don Gagne, thanks so much. My pleasure. Good talking with you. Four days remain before a government shutdown And the House of Representatives has yet to pass either short-term spending bills or long-term ones. 
Earlier this morning, we heard from NPR's Susan Davis, who told us a handful of House Republicans have blocked the whole process. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has gone along, so the minority rules. The vast majority of lawmakers on Capitol Hill do not want to be in this shutdown scenario. But doing so for McCarthy also opens up a very real risk that a member from the far right, most likely Matt Gates of Florida, because he's been the loudest on this, would try to introduce a resolution to throw him out of the speakership if he aligns himself with Democrats to try to pass these spending bills or even a stopgap. Based on what you said, are we really heading for a shutdown because Kevin McCarthy wants to keep his job? You know, I can't presume how he navigates out of this, but it is absolutely true that Congress has got itself into this point because of leadership decisions he has made. Does that make any sense? Matthew Green of Catholic University wrote a book about how speakers called Speaker of the House, and he's in Studio 31 this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for coming by. Is that the way that you see McCarthy's dilemma? He's doing all of this because he wants to stay employed? Well, I think that's certainly part of it. Uh, McCarthy um, likes being speaker. He waited a long time to become speaker. uh, And he needs the support of the House and certainly his party in order to stay in the job. Um, That sounds really selfish when I say it that way. But I want to offer the opportunity to look at it differently. Is there a case to be made that it is good for America for Kevin McCarthy to preserve himself because he has sometimes been useful to the country and would be less disruptive than somebody else who might try to be speaker? Oh, that's one way of putting it, sure. I mean, you know, Kevin McCarthy, um, certainly, um, you know, there's folks who've criticized him, uh, particularly on the left. uh, And, you know, one could argue maybe there might be better folks to be speaker. On the other hand, there could be uh, less ideal candidates. Uh, And so, you know, one could argue this is not the the best way to resolve a leadership battle is to have a, a potential government shut down. But in some ways, this is also part and parcel of congressional politics. I'm curious about how this would work. Let's say that Matt Gates goes ahead and introduces this resolution, which Kevin McCarthy has dared him to do. Introduce the resolution. See if you can get the votes to oust me. Um, does everything in the House come to a halt until they resolve that, meaning the government would in fact shut down? Or could they deal with the government issue first and deal with their leadership squabbles later? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, and we've never been in a situation like this where the House would vote on whether or not to declare the speakership vacant while there's a, a government shutdown. Um, presumably, the House could find a way to sort both of those out. Um, my guess would be that we would deal with them in Syrium. So first would be one and then the other. And most likely, we deal with the budget matters first before we had a battle over the speakership. So McCarthy could decide, I'm going to lose my job, but we're going to keep the government open. We're going to pass some spending bills and we'll find out if I lose my job afterward. He could make that decision. He could do that, right. And in a way, he already did that, as you mentioned, by daring uh, Matt Gates to, to offer this resolution to declare the speakership vacant, and it hasn't happened. Um, and so my guess is that what's going to happen first is they're going to work out this budget situation. And then if Matt Gates and his allies feel that McCarthy has somehow not represented them properly, then they would uh, seriously consider an attempt to remove him. How have past speakers not been in this exact position before? Because certainly there have been uh, reluctant lawmakers or unhappy lawmakers in the past. So what the Republican Party has in the House right now, which uh, is a very unusual, are two things. One, they have a very small majority. So it only takes a handful of Republicans to vote against their party on a partisan vote in order for Republicans to lose on the floor. The other thing that they have, and they've had this for some time, uh, is a group of members who are more disdainful of party loyalty, who have very strong conservative preferences and are willing to break norms. So offering a, a resolution like this normally you just wouldn't do. But uh, for these folks, it's it's something that that's perfectly appropriate. Didn't the past several Republican speakers also weaken the power of the House leadership? 
Uh, well, Pat, actually, what's what's happened since the election of Newt Gingrich is um, is the leadership in the House has become stronger. Oh. Um, so starting with Newt Gingrich, who increasingly centralized power in the speakership and weakened committees. Um, but the, what we've seen then is when you strengthen power and centralize it, then the focus becomes the speaker. And so if you're unhappy with the way the House runs, you think, well, maybe the speaker needs to be replaced. Ah, it's like a chess game. If I can just capture the king, everything else is going to go my way. That's the end of the whole thing. That's what you're saying. That's one way of putting it, yeah. Uh, in a few seconds, do you see a way out of this? Uh, I do. I think McCarthy is trying to work out uh, a complicated bargaining situation, and it may take some time. And yes, uh, we may very well have one or more government shutdowns, but I think we can see a solution here. Matthew Green of Catholic University, author of a book on House speakers and another on Newt Gingrich. Thanks so much. Thank you. Earlier this year, we brought you the story of Talib al-Majli, who was detained at the notorious Abu Ghraib prison. He detailed the abuse he says he suffered at the hands of U.S. troops there after the invasion of Iraq. Now, some 20 years after the allegations and images of widespread torture and abuse in Abu Ghraib were first made public, a further investigation by Human Rights Watch, following NPR's report, could find no evidence that the U.S. government has compensated or even offered to help victims. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has this report. The images of detainees naked and leashed like dogs and forced into other degrading positions by U.S. soldiers shocked the American public and harmed America's reputation around the world. But in all the furore that followed, it seems the actual victims of the abuse at Abu Ghraib were forgotten. In March, from his home in a Baghdad slum, a former detainee, Talib al-Majli, told us of his experiences. They're torturing us. they making us naked. Sometimes they throw that sound grenade on and ourselves. And sometimes they use the shotguns and they kill two of prisoners. And they use the, these dogs to terrifying us. They, they flooded our cells with, with water. Majli says he was one of the men forced into a grotesque human pyramid of naked detainees and photographed as U.S. soldiers posed beside them. These experiences have left him traumatized. He bites at his skin still, a nervous tick. He's barely able to work. For years, he searched for compensation from the U.S. When the photos showing the abuse of detainees were published in 2004, then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld told Congress compensating the victims was, quote, the right thing to do. But as Sarah Sunbar from Human Rights Watch says, the right thing wasn't done. Apparently, the U.S. government hasn't paid any compensation or other forms of redress. This was their finding after months spent examining government documents following NPR's report on Majli. Sanbar says the Department of Defense didn't respond to their repeated inquiries. So what does this mean for the victims? There's still no way that survivors can have their cases heard. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Rome. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, an international tribunal holds a hearing in Switzerland today to weigh the fate of a Russian figure skater who tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs at the 2022 Beijing Olympics. It's 719. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. Open house October 4th for careers in school psychology, leadership, and mental health. Scholarships available, williamjames.edu. And the Huntington, kicking off the new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, directed by Huntington Artistic Director Loretta Greco. Two generations of a Parisian family are forced to question their safety and sense of belonging in the city they love. Now through October 8th at the Huntington Theater. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. Cloudy and a high near 61 today. There's a slight chance of showers this morning. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 47. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 66. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just, learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Octopuses tend to live alone. Kind of sad. Who do you hug with all of those arms? But the largest congregation of deep-sea octopuses who live together, the largest one ever discovered, is thriving off California. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports on the secrets of a real-life octopus garden. Beneath the Pacific Ocean is a mountain, an extinct volcano called the Davidson Seamount. And we've been all over the top of it. Jim Barry is with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. He says not too long ago, a submersible vehicle explored some hills at the bottom of this mountain. And so as they're going through the dark, basically you see what's in the headlights. The headlights revealed a few purple octopuses huddling over nests of eggs. And then suddenly a lot more octopuses, a huge gathering. Which turns out to be many thousands of octopuses. And it's just a startling discovery. The explorers notice something else, too, a kind of shimmering in the water. And they realize this is a thermal spring. This is warm water coming out. Barry and some colleagues recently spent months trying to understand if the warm water is what drew the octopuses to this place. They mapped an area the size of a couple football fields. We found 6,000 animals in just a small area. So we're estimating, I don't know, up to 20,000 animals may be there. They monitored the development of eggs and octopus nests and used probes to check the water temperatures. These animals that are nesting, the females only nest in warm sites, as far as we can tell. We could find none 
in cold waters. The warmth likely speeds up the maturation of eggs. In the journal Science Advances, the research team says octopuses there spend nearly two years guarding nests of eggs before they finally hatch. That sounds like a long time to brood, but Beth Orcutt says it's actually fast. Because the other deep sea octopus that we know have brooding times of at least four years. Orcutt is with the Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences. She studied smaller octopus congregations around warm water seeps off Costa Rica. She says it's great to have such detailed observations of the California site. It shows that there's an advantage to these octopus of brooding their eggs in the warmer water. And it shows the potential importance of small, cozy spots on the ocean floor, isolated patches of warmth that haven't gotten a lot of attention, even though they're probably vital for creatures trying to eke out a living in the frigid darkness. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. There's been an explosion of interest in America's slave history in recent years. What 18th century writers sometimes called the peculiar institution has been portrayed in films, artworks, and books. And at the same time, new fights have broken out over how it should be talked about, especially in schools. Meanwhile, the place where it all began is all but invisible to Americans. But the people who live there hope that that will change. I found that out when I visited Cabo Verde recently. It's an island nation off the coast of West Africa. And I saw a placid bay, gentle waves lapping the shore, a dusty plaza with souvenir stands, a stately fort, and historic church. It could be any tucked-away island getaway, the kind of place that tourists like to think of as their own special secret. But Cidade Velha, the old city near the capital of Cabo Verde, carries other secrets, an outsized place in one of the world's most transformative events, the transatlantic slave trade. Abel Jassi Amado is a scholar of Cabo Verde's history who teaches at Simmons University and is also Cabo Verdean himself. You know, we cannot really understand the movement of people and other um, cargoes, uh, plants and animals from one part of the world, from the old world, Europe and West Africa to the Americas and vice versa, without looking at the Cabo Verde. In fact, um, we can make the argument that um, Cabo Verde was the, in one of the first hubs in the Atlantic world. Cabo Verde, especially Cidade Verja, was the center of trade and enslaved people for more than 300 years. It was the site of the first settlement in Cabo Verde established by Portuguese explorers, who eventually began the trade that built fortunes, drew pirates whose names would become legend, and helped shape the food, people, and culture around the world as we know it today. Right now, we are in this uh, beautiful building here, which is a Catholic church. My NPR colleagues and I, together with a few other journalists, wound up on Cabo Verde on a crew rest and refueling stop on our way to the refugee settlement on the Chad-Sudan border. Our host, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, decided to make the most of it by arranging a tour of the historic site. It was a surprisingly bracing experience. So this building, this church was built, uh, it started first as a small chapel where we had the slaves baptized. Our U.S. embassy guide, a local employee, explains that gorgeous baptismal font where enslaved people were baptized so they could fetch a higher price at market. That restored fort, those holes in the ground where there is barely room to stand, let alone sit or lie down, where slaves were kept hidden so they couldn't be stolen during raids. That plaza where enslaved people were bought and sold. Jazzy Amato says it isn't exactly clear how the slave trade began there. 
one hypothesis that we may want to start with is the pressure made by Portuguese settlers, the first settlers in the islands. You know, they reached out to the king and say, you know, one way that we could make a living here is if we are granted rights to engage in trade with West African uh, territories, including engaging in human cargo trade. So that's that's the starting point. And eventually the, the king wants to maintain a presence of Portuguese in the islands and issued that royal, royal charter of 1466. Because of its Portuguese colonial heritage, Cabo Verde has been a vacation spot for Portuguese and other Europeans for years, but not for many Americans who have the Caribbean islands on their doorstep, and its pivotal role in the slave trade is not well known in the U.S. This despite the fact that there's a long history of immigration to the U.S., often led by seamen who headed to traditional whaling towns in New England. There are almost as many Cabo Verdeans outside the country as in it, including House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries, who traces his roots to Cabo Verde, and the late jazz pianist and composer Horace Silver. The country's leaders hope to take advantage of that connection by encouraging more Americans to visit and invest, especially those with ties to the island nation. But, as Cabo Verdean scholar Jassi Amado says, no matter where they live or work now, Cabo Verdeans have one thing in common longing for home. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on Morning Edition, the state of Maine is launching a first-of-its-kind program that lets schools financially assist struggling families. It's 729. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. WBUR supporters include Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house October 1st, buacademy.org. Metro West Subaru, where same day and next day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Bridgewater State University, hosting Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lech Walesa. On campus, October 3rd, bridgew.edu slash events. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. This is day 12 of the United Auto Workers strike against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. President Biden will be traveling to Michigan today to join a UAW picket line in the suburbs of Detroit. Biden has referred to himself as the most pro-union president in history. Seven candidates will take part in tomorrow night's Republican presidential primary debate in California. Former President Donald Trump is skipping this second GOP debate to address UAW members in Michigan. The governing boards of the Writers Guild of America are scheduled to vote today on the contract agreement reached over the weekend to end a strike by Hollywood film and TV writers. They've been off the job for nearly five months. It's unclear when members of the WGA will be asked to ratify the three-year deal. Hollywood actors represented by the SAG-AFTRA union remain on strike. NPR's Marie Andrusevich says the actors' union is now turning its attention to the producers of video games. 
As the union enters the latest round of bargaining with video game companies this week, it does so after more than 98% of voting members approved a potential strike. SAG-AFTRA says following five previous bargaining sessions, 10 major game producers have failed to work with the union on compensation undercut by inflation, unregulated use of AI, and safety issues. This is NPR News. This is WBWAR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new proposal on Beacon Hill could require many Massachusetts employers to include a salary range on job postings. The rule would apply to businesses with 25 or more employees. Advocates say providing salary information would help close gender and racial wage gaps in the state. At least seven other states have similar rules in place, including Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York. The police chief in Dighton has resigned amid charges of insider trading. Sean Cronin faces several counts of fraud for his alleged role in a multi-million dollar trading scheme. He was charged by federal prosecutors this summer. Cronin has served on the force since 2006. He'll step down by next week. A historic society of magicians in Salem is facing a membership shortage. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports the group is now hosting recruitment events. The Society of American Magicians Salem Assembly has been hosting meetings and lectures since the 1970s. But enrollment is down, according to President Bill Jensen. He points to the pandemic, shuttered magic shops, and people relying on the Internet to learn tricks. So members are hoping to conjure new magician recruits. And then as you move up into the group... We have people who do everything from just a a basic card trick to sawing somebody in half. Their next event is 7.30 tomorrow night at the Beverly Public Library. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. The Red Sox are back in action tonight at Fenway Park. They'll host the Tampa Bay Rays. The Bruins will play their second exhibition game of the fall tonight as they visit the Buffalo Sabres. A slight chance of showers this morning, otherwise overcast with highs in the low 60s. Tonight we'll have lows in the upper 40s and it'll still be partly cloudy. Tomorrow mostly sunny with highs in the mid-60s. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition.
From NPR News, I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is in California, where he is expected to take part in another Republican presidential debate tomorrow. But back home in Florida today, his efforts to shape his state's congressional districts are being challenged in a federal lawsuit. DeSantis surprised Republican lawmakers last year by insisting on a map that eliminated a voting district in North Florida with a sizable black population. His maps have been challenged in court, and one one of those cases begins today in Tallahassee. NPR's Greg Allen is with us now to tell us more about it. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Michelle. All right, so dig into this case for us. What's it about? Well, you know, as you know, once every decade after there's a census, states have to redraw the maps of their congressional districts to reflect the changes in population. In Florida, the maps here are drawn by the legislature. But last year, Governor DeSantis did something that no governor here had ever done before. He took charge of the congressional redistricting process. He vetoed the legislature's maps and essentially forced them to approve his map. DeSantis's map eliminated a congressional district that for decades, and with court approval, was drawn to preserve the ability of black voters to elect a representative of their choice. The lawsuit says DeSantis's map violates constitutional guarantees that black Floridians have had that their votes won't be abridged or denied on account of their race. And as you were telling us, it was a surprise that DeSantis stepped in and took over a process usually carried out by the legislature and, oh, by the way, a Republican-dominated legislature at that. So mm -hmm. why did he do it? Well, you know, from the beginning, DeSantis has said that he believed the North Florida Congressional District was unconstitutional because it was drawn taking race into account. Now, that flips the argument on its head. Voting rights groups say that you have to protect the ability of black voters to elect a representative of their choice. But DeSantis said, no, the Constitution says you can't take race into account at all. And that's at odds with decades of legal rulings in this country that have protected the rights of black voters. Michael Lee, a redistricting expert with the Brennan Center, says he thinks with this map, DeSantis was taking a political gamble. I think that when Governor DeSantis pushed for the radical redrawing of the district, he was making a bet that a much more conservative U.S. Supreme Court would be open to the idea that he really needed to be more race blind in drawing maps. You know, but so far, Lee says that doesn't seem to be the case. In another redistricting case in Alabama, the U.S. Supreme Court has come down on the side of voting rights groups. And the high court said that Alabama must draw a map that adds a second congressional district that gives black voters a chance to elect a representative of their choice. You know, a state judge in Florida recently ruled that DeSantis's congressional map is unconstitutional and must be redrawn. So what's the status of that case? Right. Well, in some ways, Florida's constitution has even stronger protections for black voters than the U.S. Constitution. The, the state constitution says congressional districts can't be drawn in a way that diminishes the ability of black voters to choose a representative. The judge said it's clear that DeSantis's map does that, and now it has to be redrawn. DeSantis's administration is appealing that decision and is hoping to get a different ruling when the case eventually reaches Florida's Supreme Court. But that is going to take many months. And as you've just reminded us, it isn't just Florida. There are a number of states where redistricting battles are going on in the courts. How might this affect next year's election? Well, Governor DeSantis has spoken with pride about the impact his map had in the last election. In Florida, Republicans picked up four additional seats uh, in 2022, something that was clearly done that happened in part due to this map. So right now, Florida is one of several states where racial discrimination or gerrymandering is alleged and where the maps are tied up in court. In some of these states, including Florida, Republicans representing uh, lawyers representing Republican lawmakers seem to be 
be pursuing delaying tactics. Their aim seems to be to, to run out the clock, basically to push off any final action on new maps until it's too late to affect the 2024 election. That is NPR's Greg Allen in Miami helping us follow these complicated cases, and there are many of them. Greg, thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Okay, an international sports tribunal begins a hearing in Switzerland today to settle a doping scandal from the 2022 Winter Olympics. The Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva tested positive for a banned substance back then. And because of the unsettled scandal, U.S. athletes still have not received their medals from the team figure skating competition. Here's NPR's Brian Mann. This crisis in the figure skating world actually began a few weeks before the Beijing Games. Camila Valieva, then a 15-year-old skating superstar, competed at a national event in St. Petersburg, Russia. Favorite for Olympic gold, Camila Valieva. She skated masterfully, but a sample taken during that competition later tested positive for a banned performance-enhancing heart medication. That should have disqualified Valieva from competing in Beijing, but the result was only revealed after she helped Russia win what appeared to be a team gold medal. Right before the award ceremony, chaos erupted. Here's Zach Donahue, a member of the U.S. figure skating team, describing that moment to NPR. We were dressed in our ceremony gear in a room waiting to take a bus to the venue and we're told um so this is canceled with Dagieva out u.s athletes expected their silver medal would turn into gold with japan bumping up to silver and canada taking bronze american skater vincent joe says they were promised the mess would be sorted out and medals awarded quickly but that didn't happen we're now closing in on 600 days, and we haven't heard anything, we haven't been communicated with, and we're really in the dark here. Joe and his teammates petitioned to be present at this week's hearing in Switzerland. They were denied. In a statement, the International Court of Arbitration for Sport said it will hear testimony behind closed doors before ruling on Valieva's fate and settling who gets what medals. According to Joe, the scandal and the delay already cost him and his fellow athletes their moment in the spotlight. It certainly is a statement about the state of clean sport, a landmark in the history of doping scandals in the Olympics and in figure skating history. This week's hearing will include top officials from the Russian anti-doping agency. Valieva, who faces a possible multi-year ban, is expected to attend via video conference. It's a moment that highlights yet again the doping controversy that's long shadowed Russia's sports programs. Speaking to NPR last year, Travis Tigert, head of the U.S. anti-doping agency, said Valieva's case showed Russia's athletic culture is still rotten. So the abuse on this athlete, like we saw in the past of them abusing young athletes, is really unacceptable. And when is the world going to step up and say, we're not going to allow that to happen on our watch? The International Olympic Committee is expected to allow Russian athletes to compete at the Paris Games next summer on the same terms as in Beijing. They won't be allowed to compete under the Russian flag or play the Russian national anthem. Skater Vincent Zhou describes those punishments as a slap on the wrist. Obviously, there's still doping going on, as the Valieva case shows. It's just business as usual, and there's no real repercussion. This week's hearing runs through the end of the week. It's unclear when a ruling will be issued, finally clearing the way for the last medal ceremony of the 2022 Winter Games. Brian Mann, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Tuesday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack runs down the programs that will stop if the government shuts down, including food assistance for millions of children through the Women, Infants, and Children program. Overcast and low 60s today with a slight chance of showers this morning. Still partly cloudy tonight as it falls to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, mostly clear skies and temperatures in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston. Discover and rediscover the place we call home with WBUR's new field guide to Boston. The field guide connects you to greater Boston's neighborhoods, people, and history. Find your way at WBUR.org slash field guide. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Explore Babson College programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash open house. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Nearly 60,000 personal care attendants in Massachusetts could soon be getting a pay raise. A state panel will vote today on a new contract for union workers who provide at-home care for older adults and people with disabilities. In addition to higher pay, the deal would include more time off and paid training opportunities. Shares in Waltham-based Morphic Therapeutic are down nearly 37 percent in pre-market trading. That follows trial data showing the company's ulcerative colitis drug was less effective than expected. The Boston Business Journal reports the drug is Morphic's only therapy currently in clinical stage program. Marlboro-based Hologic is teaming up with the pharmaceutical giant Bayer to offer enhanced mammography imaging. The companies say the scans will use contrast agents to get better images for breast cancer screening. The partnership will focus on bringing the technology to Europe, Canada, and the Asia-Pacific region. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. The state of Maine is launching a first-of-its-kind program under which schools can financially assist families with rent, utilities, and other household expenses. As Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg reports, it comes as the state has seen a huge surge in students experiencing homelessness. Inside the basement of an old school building in the central main town of Lewiston, Jamie Cowett rips open a trash bag full of donated clothes, just one of dozens overflowing in a large pile on the floor. Cowett is the director of The Store Next Door. It's a resource center for the district's hundreds of homeless students, offering everything from shirts and shoes to a hot shower. Because a lot of kids won't 
go to school if they don't have nutrition, clothing, just a lot of their basic needs so these kids can graduate and get through their school day. Cowette's Day starts well before the bell rings. The barebone staff here are constantly texting and answering phone calls, trying to help a growing number of students and families navigating a maze of social services to find a place to stay. So a lot of the time the youth just wants to be in school and not want to figure out this stuff, nor do they know how. They're not an adult and they've never had to navigate these things before, so they're really looking for support. In recent years, the number of students experiencing homelessness in Maine has skyrocketed, putting new pressure on school districts across the state. With the state of housing in southern Maine, we've seen our homeless cases rise exponentially in all three communities. Chris Indorf is the assistant superintendent for the coastal Maine communities of Biddeford, Saco, and Dayton. He says in recent years, the district paid to put a family into a motel for two weeks after discovering they were living in the back of a U-Haul in the winter. Another family didn't have the money to deal with a bed bug infestation. And so we were able to use funds from our Biddeford Education Foundation to pay for a company to go in and to treat the home so that the kids can continue to access their education. A 2020 study found that before the pandemic, nearly three quarters of Maine's evictions were filed as a result of a tenant only owing an average of about $1,300. And officials are hoping the new state program can help to fill in that financial gap. Federal law requires each school to have a liaison to assist students and families who don't have stable housing. And Amelia Lyons-Rukema with the Maine Department of Education says that those liaisons can now spend up to $750 to help families pay for bills such as rent, utilities, or home repairs. It's going to change lives. That's what liaisons have been telling me. There's a flood of relief that comes over them because they say, oh, finally, I have something I can actually do to help in these situations. Back at the store next door in Lewiston, director Jamie Cowett says any additional support is welcome. But she says if housing continues to be scarce and unaffordable, the number of homeless families will only keep climbing. And if we don't have buildings that people can afford to live in, of course our population is going to increase. So we have all these problems and I just, I don't know the solution. The Maine legislature plans to evaluate the program's effects over the next two years. And nationally, some groups are watching it as a potential model for other states, as schools look for new ways to assist homeless students. For NPR News, I'm Robbie Feinberg in Portland, Maine. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, both President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump are heading to Detroit to show their support for striking auto workers. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu. And the ICA. Explore waterfront views and new work by leading Boston artists. ICABoston.org. 
Olivia Rodrigo has become known for her confrontational songwriting style, ripe for social media with lyrics that quickly become their own catchphrases. But she doesn't plan it that way. That's the antithesis of, of creativity to me. I think it should be for you first and foremost, and that's how the best songs get made. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, Rodrigo's new album, Guts, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Biden will be in Michigan today to walk the picket line with striking auto workers. Lawmakers returned to Capitol Hill this morning with just four days to work out a spending deal before a government shutdown goes into effect. And 2024 Republican presidential hopefuls are getting ready to take the stage tomorrow for the second GOP debate, but frontrunner and former President Donald Trump says he will not attend. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use, alprime.com. Low 60s today under cloudy skies. This morning there's a slight chance of showers. Upper 40s tonight and it'll be partly cloudy. Skies clear a bit for a mostly sunny day tomorrow. Temperatures will be in the mid-60s. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Narcan, which is a nasal spray that can reverse an opioid overdose, is now available over-the-counter. Many people hope making it easier to get will help drive down overdose deaths in the United States, which have climbed to more than 100,000 annually. But is it really easier to get? We have two stories this morning. Jackie Fortier is in Southern California, and WHYY's Nicole Leonard tried to find some Narcan in Philadelphia. I walk into a local pharmacy and begin searching the aisle shelves for bright pink boxes with the word Narcan on the front. But I don't find any, so I head to the pharmacy counter. Hi, I was wondering, do you guys have the new OTC Narcan stocked yet? This is the third pharmacy I've tried. The first wasn't selling any Narcan. The second had some, but it was behind the pharmacy counter and cost $72. At the third store, I'm finally able to buy a box at the manufacturer's recommended price of $44.99. The Narcan is again behind the counter, but the sale is quick. Thank you very much. Take care. Even at the manufacturer's price, the cost of Narcan could be a major problem for its accessibility. The higher the price, the fewer people are going to splurge to have this with them in case somebody else needs it. Dr. Lewis Nelson is an addiction medicine expert at Rutgers University. He says where the medication is physically available in the store could be another problem. Which is something that we do get a little concerned about, mostly as it applies to people with substance use disorder who feel the stigma of having to go in and ask a pharmacist for a product that's available behind the counter. Nelson says over time, the cost may drop if the FDA approves other brands of naloxone for over-the-counter sale. But for now, Nelson and other addiction treatment experts say programs that distribute Narcan for free will be needed to get the overdose reversal medication into the hands of people who need it the most. For NPR News, I'm Nicole Leonard in Philadelphia.
And I'm Jackie Fortier at the Mexican Consulate in L.A. About 30 people are waiting to be called for their new Mexican passports or ID cards. It's a captive audience for Martha Hernandez, a community health worker for L.A. County. She visits five Latin American consulates a week, teaching immigrants how to use Narcan. She demonstrates how to do CPR on a mannequin to help keep an unresponsive person alive after administering Narcan. Jose Magaña Lozano volunteers to try it in front of the group. He takes a free box of Narcan after the presentation. At 67, Magaña works in cement construction in L.A. and has lived in the U.S. for 30 years. Like many people of his generation, he's only seen overdoses on TV and was unfamiliar with Narcan. Now, after the presentation, he feels prepared to help. Hopefully, in case I do see it happen, at least you know what to do. And at the very least, you can help a little. Mexico doesn't have an opioid misuse problem like the U.S., but for younger generations who went to high school in the States, it's all too familiar. I've actually learned it in high school because you'd be surprised. People hear it, but when they don't see it, some people don't know how to react to that. Luis Armas Ramirez was excited to get a free box of Narcan while waiting for his travel documents. This is expensive. It's crazy expensive. Also, you never know. In L.A. County, the rate of fentanyl deaths among Latinos increased more than 700 percent in just seven years. After her last presentation of the day, county health worker Martha Hernandez sent me a text. She'd given out 45 boxes of Narcan. Tomorrow, a visit to the Guatemalan consulate to teach more immigrants about the danger of opioid overdoses and how they could help. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. That story comes from NPR's partnerships with WHYY, LAist, and KFF Health News. In other news, a team of archaeologists has announced a surprising discovery about our very early ancestors. Stone Age humans were building with wood half a million years ago. NPR's Gabriel Spitzer explains it is believed to be the oldest known wooden structure in the world. The Colombo River snakes along the border between Zambia and Tanzania before plunging nearly 800 feet over Colombo Falls. In 2019, up above the falls, Maggie Katongo and a crew of archaeologists were burrowing into the soggy banks. Of course, as we went down and uh, kept on digging, we found the water and it kept on coming up and we had to use uh, buckets to kind of remove the water from the trenches. Katongo is curator of archaeology at Livingstone Museum in Zambia, and that water they were bailing was key to what they were looking for, ancient wood worked by early humans into tools and structures. Wood artifacts don't last like stone tools do, but after thousands of years under water and clay, fragments can survive. Larry Barham of the University of Liverpool was chief of the excavation. He says eventually they found more than just fragments. When we first uncovered it, it didn't look particularly exciting. It's uh, basically one log lying horizontally over another one. But then you look closely and you remove the sand around it, you can see where the one sits on top of the other is a notch. That notch and other parts of the logs showed telltale signs of being cut, chopped, and shaped by human tools. This thing was an intended component. It was, in, in a sense, engineered. But engineered for what? Barham mulled over the question. To interpret this, I drew on my childhood experience with a toy called Lincoln Logs. People laughed at me. They still do. You know, your listeners will all be familiar with Lincoln Log and then the, the notches which allow you to pile up and make a log cabin. And the Lincoln Logs really, really help. 
Barham concluded the wood formed part of a base or platform. If so, it's by far the oldest known example of people building with wood. The team dated it to about 476,000 years ago. That's well before modern humans evolved. Early hominins are thought to have been nomadic. This site suggests they could have had at least semi-permanent settlements. Maggie Katongo says that has experts rethinking their assumptions about Stone Age people. When we make reference to these hominins, we always perceive them as primitive. But from the technology that we've been able to discover at the site, you'd see how sophisticated these hominins were. The team's findings are published in the journal Nature. Gabriel Spitzer, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brigham and Women's Hospital. For expert, research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's, specialists in women's health with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. Brighamandwomens.org. And Cambridge Science Festival. Boston Fashion Week, Illuminous, and Stiggity Stacks, a one-night-only future fashion experience, this Saturday in Kendall Square. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Congress is in crisis mode with Republicans divided, a government shutdown just days away, and no clear path to a resolution. It's Tuesday, September 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Biden administration is warning that a shutdown would impact government programs, including food assistance for low-income pregnant women, infants, and children. Also, in states where election conspiracies have flourished, election officials are leaving their jobs in droves. We are not paying people in local election administrative jobs enough to be the subject of public scrutiny, particularly when that scrutiny is often misguided. And this hour, a society of magicians in Salem is trying to conjure up new recruits in part by offering hands-on training. We have people who do everything from just a, a basic card trick to sawing somebody in half. Cloudy in 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. This is day 12 of the United Auto Workers' strike against Detroit's big three automakers. President Biden plans to be in Michigan today to join a picket line in the Detroit suburbs. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the president was invited by the head of the UAW. President Biden, who often touts himself as being the most pro-union president, says the United Auto Workers helped save the automobile industry when it was crashing. And I think that now that the industry is roaring back, they should, they should participate in the, in the benefit of that. Biden's visit comes the day before former President Donald Trump comes to visit Detroit as well. The union endorsed Biden in 2020, but has yet to endorse a candidate in the 2024 election. 
Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. A union representing thousands of hospitality workers in Nevada is taking a strike vote today. The Culinary and Bartenders Union is negotiating with the Las Vegas casinos and hotels for a new contract. No walkout is imminent. The House is scheduled to vote on spending bills today. The government will partially shut down this weekend unless Congress passes spending legislation. Some hardline House Republicans are blocking their own party's bills. Authorities in Hawaii have allowed the first set of people to return to their burned-out properties in the city of Lahaina. Most of the city on the island of Maui was burned to the ground by wildfires in August. At least 97 people perished. Resident Tani Katayama lost her family home. Lahaina, it looks like a war zone, and we are grieving, and there are triggers everywhere, and we're not ready for that. The residents were offered protective equipment to shield them from toxic dust. There's concern that the ash could contain dangerous substances such as asbestos or lead. A three-day hearing gets underway today in Switzerland. It's expected to finally settle a doping scandal that marred the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. NPR's Brian Mann reports because of the controversy, some U.S. figure skaters still have not received their medals. Russian star figure skater Kamila Valieva was found to have tested positive for a banned substance, but she was still allowed to compete in Beijing last year. Months of international legal wrangling followed, leading to this week's final hearing before the Court of Arbitration for Sport. U.S. skater Vincent Zhou says he wanted to be present for the hearing, but was denied. That just adds another layer of obscurity to, you know, you know what really goes on behind closed doors? What sorts of conversations are they having? You know, like, why don't they want us to, to see? Valieva faces a possible multi-year suspension from figure skating. If she and her Russian team are disqualified, U.S. team skaters will receive a gold medal. It's not clear when a final ruling will be issued. Brian Mann, NPR News. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey will sign an executive order today aimed at fast-tracking clean energy projects in the state. The order will create a commission to streamline the permitting process for such projects. Supporters say the effort will help Massachusetts meet its commitment to achieve net-zero emissions by 2050. The majority of Boston public school buses have been arriving on time so far this school year. According to Mayor Michelle Wu, as of last Friday, 90 percent of buses arrived by the first bell. Ninety-eight percent arrived within 15 minutes of the start of the school day. More now from WBUR's Amanda Beeland. Mayor Wu says the district is working hard to change bus arrival times. The state mandates that 95 percent of BPS buses get to school by the first bell. Wu says while she's aiming for 100 percent, she knows that's not realistic. Should the district be subject to state takeover if we're at 95 percent versus at 90 percent when everything is close to 95 or 100 percent when we're within 15 minutes? We want to continue doing everything possible. But to get hung up on the specifics when we are working at the systemic challenges, that is our focus point. Wu says for the first time since before the pandemic began, the district is fully staffed when it comes to bus drivers and monitors. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. A coalition of community and health activists is bracing itself for an influx of patients after the closure of the birthing center at UMass Memorial Hospital in Lemonster. David Shieldmeyer is a spokesperson for the Massachusetts Nurses Association. He says alternative centers like Worcester Hospital are already overwhelmed with patients. 
as we had warned, they have absolutely no capacity to take any patients from Lemonster uh, after the closing. They are already overwhelmed with their own patient population. Shieldmeyer says Saturday's closure of the Lemonster Birthing Center puts expectant mothers at risk because many of them have to travel up to an hour to get to other medical facilities. The UMass Memorial has said it didn't have the staff to keep the unit open. The city of Boston paid out more than $2 million to settle discrimination claims this year. Public records obtained by the Boston Globe show the payments stem from five complaints by city workers. Those included employees in the police department and public schools. The complaints all predate the Wu administration. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. The Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays will play tonight at Fenway. This is the second-to-last home game of the year for Boston. There are just five games left in the regular season. Cloudy with a slight chance for showers this morning. It'll be in the lower 60s. Partly cloudy overnight and down to the 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-60s. It should stay dry through the weekend. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. On a Tuesday, it's Tuesday, right, Michelle? It is. Okay. All day. On a Tuesday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. A Sikh activist living in exile in Canada was murdered there, setting off a diplomatic uproar. What does it all say about India's growing power? We'll dig into that question in just a few minutes. But first, with just four days to go, House Republicans remain deadlocked on action to avert a government shutdown. The shutdown would affect a whole host of programs that lower-income Americans depend upon, including the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is better known as SNAP. It's the largest domestic nutrition assistance program, and it would also affect the WIC program, which serves millions of low-income women, infants, and children. Our colleague A. Martinez spoke earlier with Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack about all this. A. asked him first about the impact of a shutdown on those nutrition programs. Well, the SNAP benefits are not impacted initially. If we were looking at an extended shutdown, then there would be uh, serious problems in terms of being able to comply and provide those benefits. The program that's most at risk immediately with the shutdown is the Women and Infants Children Program, commonly referred to as WIC. Uh, it helps uh, nearly 7 million pregnant moms, postpartum moms, and children under the age of six. Nearly 50% of all young children in the country participate in this program. When there is a shutdown, uh, within a matter of days, benefits are cut off to these families. And that's an unfortunate circumstance because it compromises nutrition and health and obviously impacts and affects those families in a very real way. So what would their options be if things get cut off, if the shutdown does happen? <laughs> their options are they can't buy the food because they don't have the benefit and they go without. How are you preparing for that possibility? Well, uh, look, it's not my job to decide when the Congress and the House of Representatives does their job. My only hope is, and my focus is on making sure that they understand that there's a real consequence if they don't do their job. Uh, and that consequence is that millions of moms and babes and children will not get the nutritional assistance that they need 
to be healthy. Uh, and that obviously has a long-term impact uh, on the country. That's why these shutdowns are so devastating because they are very, very disruptive to the lives of ordinary Americans who count on programs like WIC. And the Department of Agriculture can't do anything, just to be clear. We have a contingency fund that will last a day or two. States may have uh, some leftover funds that have not yet been used, but the vast majority of beneficiaries will see an immediate cutoff, if you will, of benefits. And uh, the longer this shutdown, if it occurs, goes on, the more serious the consequences become. And if it is a long, long uh, shutdown, then you're looking at not only WIC being compromised, but also the SNAP program as well. Secretary, more broadly, I mean, should consumers be just anticipating that groceries might be more expensive? A family is going to wait till next week, until it turns October to buy their groceries for a few weeks. Are they going to see higher prices if there's a shutdown? I can't say that they're going to see higher prices. The group that I'm concerned about from a standpoint of food and the food supply are the farmers who produce the food uh, because they too get impacted negatively by a shutdown. Uh, oftentimes, farmers are in need of uh, what are called marketing loans, which help them uh, essentially hedge the price they get for the crops they're harvesting. If they can't hedge the price, then they basically have to take the price the market gives them, and they could lose profit, and that profit could be the difference between that farm family making a, a profit off the farm or not. Uh, and that's a real consequence as well of a shutdown, because every county office that would uh, work with farmers to utilize and uh, the marketing assistance loan program will be shut down and farmers won't be able to access uh, that program and a number of other programs. And for you, Secretary, I mean, you've been in government long enough to encounter government shutdowns and, and the threats of a government shutdown in the past. I mean, are you, are you numb to this political process? How do you handle this? i tell you what, no one in this position should ever be numb to the process because you should always bear in mind the real people that get affected in a real way. Uh, that pregnant mom or that child who needs WIC assistance, that farmer who needs a loan, or that young couple who's buying their first home who need a home loan uh, from USDA, but they can't get the home loan, so the dream house uh, goes to another buyer uh, who is able to provide the financing more quickly. Numb to the consequences of a shutdown that is, uh, that is reckless uh, and unnecessary. Um, and we shouldn't even be having this conversation if people just do their job. Then is it fair to say that I hear frustration in your voice that we get to the edge like this and there are so many people's lives that are going to be affected? Uh, that's fair. That's absolutely fair because I've been through this before. I've seen, I've seen this play uh, and I know that it hurts people in a real way. Tom Vilsack is the Secretary of Agriculture. Uh, Secretary Vilsack, thanks a lot. Thank you. A global diplomatic fight highlights the growing prominence and power of India. It is the world's most populous nation now with a growing economy, and it was a big deal when Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said evidence linked India's intelligence service to the killing of an Indian man exiled in Canada. India denied that claim. Each country took some diplomatic moves to show displeasure with the other, and the United States faced a dispute between a historic ally and a country that it really, really wants as a friend. Chittaj Bajpay has followed all of this. He is a senior fellow for South Asia at Chatham House, which is a London-based global affairs think tank. I mean, it's important to note that no one has yet been charged with the killing three months after the murder. Canada has yet to release the intelligence that it's compiled against India. And Trudeau's statements, I think, have still been relatively nuanced. He's referring to credible allegations, not evidence, and potential and not yet confirmed linkages. If the allegations are proven to be true... It definitely points towards signs of a more assertive and muscular 
Indian foreign policy. India's intelligence services have been highly active in neighboring countries for decades, but to be complicit in the assassination in a Western countries, you know, a G7 NATO member state, I think to a degree would be a, a game changer. Uh, and it's important to note that India is seeking the status of a major global power, as noted by its recent G20 presidency. So I think uh, India is a country that is more prone to taking offense to challenges to its status and sovereignty. Uh, and it's also more prone to taking retaliation, uh, which we've seen with this recent you know, tit-for-tat escalation. I'm interested in a comparison that you draw in your writing. You note that China... Uh, or some people in China anyway, feel that they have a natural position at the center of the world, that they have been the most populous country, that they are a thousands of years old civilization, that they just by right should be a major, major world power, if not the leading world power. What is the Indian version of that story? There's a degree of similarity. I mean, both China and India view themselves as civilizational states. So they view themselves as countries that deserve to be respected as major global powers on the world stage. And there are also countries that have suffered look to the history of colonialism. China talks about the 100 years of humiliation. Uh, India has, you know, a similar 200 years of humiliation under British colonial rule. So I think these two factors, the fact that the India views itself like China as a major, you know, a civilizational state, a rising global power, and also a country that has been wronged, it creates the ingredients for it to be highly sensitive to any infringements upon its status and sovereignty and, and, and highly prone to taking retaliatory actions. Do you see a situation where each country, in the absence of proof of its case, is leaning back on kind of its central narrative? I mean, Canada is saying, wait a minute, we have the rule of law here. You can't go around assassinating people. And India is saying, wait a minute, you're a Western country. You can't be telling us what to do. Yeah, I think uh, right now, at present, there don't seem to be any signs of... Uh, of any form of rapprochement between both countries, and they seem to be doubling down on their on their position. Uh, and I think you know this is where countries like the U.S. will have a, you know an important role to play. I would perhaps you know draw parallels to what we've seen the role the U.S. has played in managing tensions between other you know important partners such as South Korea and Japan. Has it been smart then for the United States not to pick up and repeat the Canadian allegations? The U.S. and other countries, you know, Australia, the U.K., they've all had a relatively muted or restrained response to the allegations. And I think uh, short of there being any definitive evidence linking the Indian government to the assassination, the, the response is likely to remain muted. Uh, and any criticism will really be made behind closed doors. That being said, I think we have seen a somewhat, you know, harder line being taken. So, you know, Blinken had noted that the investigation really needs to run its course. But we also saw uh, National Security Advisor uh, Jake Sullivan saying that, you know, no country has any special exemptions. Uh, and it's important, you know, again, to keep in mind that uh, India, it's a country of growing strategic importance. Uh, last year, it passed the UK in terms of GDP. It's passed China in terms of population. Uh, it's seen to be, uh, you know, a bulwark against the rise of China. And, and Washington obviously doesn't want to jeopardize the time and energy that it's invested in its relationship with India. Chidij Bajpay is a senior fellow for South Asia at Chatham House. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. One of the hit makers of the 1960s has died. Terry Kirkman started the band The Association in 1964, and a few years later scored a number one hit with this one, Cherish. Cherish is the word I use to describe All the feeling that I have writing here for you inside Before the association, Terry Kirkman played with all sorts of L.A.'s most promising talent like Frank Zappa, Mama Cass Elliot, and David Crosby. 
The association was only around for about two years, but in that time they charted five hit songs and opened the legendary Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. The Music Performance Rights Organization, BMI, calculated its most played songs of the 20th century, and this one came in at number two, just behind You've Lost That Love and Feeling and ahead of the Beatles yesterday. You ask me if there'll come a time when I grow tired of you. Never mind, love. Never My Love reached number two on the Billboard charts. Terry Kirkman left the association in 1972, returned a few years later, and then finally retired from touring in 1984. He eventually worked for the Music Cares Musicians Assistance Program, which helps people with substance abuse problems. He died this past Saturday at the age of 83. One of those groups where I never bought the album, but the music is kind of in my head. This is NPR News. Mine too. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, lawmakers return to Congress today with Speaker Kevin McCarthy facing an insurgency from hard-right Republicans and a federal government shutdown just days away. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Winchester Natural Health, naturopathic, craniosacral, and acupuncture services focusing on chronic or unusual conditions, winchesternaturalhealth.com. Welton Forbes, over 100 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families, welchforbes.com. And New Art Center in Newton, arts education for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this fall at newartcenter.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. Local news is more relevant than ever before. Whether we're covering climate change or income inequality or health care, these issues affect us right where we live. WBUR's local journalism needs a strong future, but that's far from certain. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. Help get us to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Cloudy and a high near 61 today. There's a slight chance of showers this morning. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 47. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 66. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. 
available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. President Biden will be in Detroit today to visit auto workers in the midst of an historic strike. And whether he picks up a sign and walks the picket line himself or not, it's still a profound gesture to the labor movement from a president who has said he identifies with that movement and is also looking for union endorsements in the 2024 election. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, the leading Republican presidential contender, is skipping a GOP debate tomorrow and heading to Michigan to meet with workers at an auto supplier. We wanted to hear more about the political significance of these dueling visits, so we called Jefferson Cowie. He is a professor of American history at Vanderbilt University with a focus on the labor movement. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So what does it say to you that a sitting U.S. president is heading to a picket line to show his support for striking workers? Well, this is unprecedented territory. We've never seen a sitting president uh, go to a picket line. And the fact that it's up against a completely different view of what working class politics should be, uh, that of Donald Trump, is absolutely fascinating. I think it's a very rich and juicy moment in uh, working class politics. So how how do you understand President Trump's decision to go to Michigan also? Well, Michigan is uh, a key swing state for him, of course. He he won it once and barely lost it another time. So uh, making inroads into that sort of typical sort of stronghold of the United Auto Workers is really important to him. Uh, Whether he'll be able to do it this time, uh, I don't know. Well, he did. I mean, in 2016, I think the data shows that he did appeal to blue-collar workers opposing trade deals, promising to bring back American jobs. He, you know, he lobbed tariffs against China, which unions mm-hmm. appreciated, but he also pursued policies that were not union-friendly. And, you know, worth noting that his cabinet was like the most, the richest cabinet sort of in terms of personal <laughs> wealth in history. So could he convince rank-and-file workers that he stands with them and actually cut into what Biden is trying to do? Of course he can. Uh, the question is, can he do it big enough? Um, and I think this is a battle kind of the hearts and minds of especially white working class voters. I mean, whether they can be won over over race and nationalism and sort of the usual Trumpian rhetoric or whether uh, we'll see a shift back toward the economic interest, the sort of Rooseveltian New Deal vision that uh, Biden has, I think is really the, the centerpiece of this drama. And for Biden to get out there, who has been absolutely clear about his politics on labor, is really, really exciting. I think, I think in some ways it's more typical for Trump to try this than it is for a sitting president. It's a place where candidates go. Candidates always go to picket lines. Presidents never go to picket lines. Interesting. So President Biden won the UAW's endorsement in 2020. The union has yet to back a candidate for 2024. Should President Biden and, say, the Democrats more broadly be worried about this? No, uh, it's too early. Um, and, uh, you know, Sean Fain has made it clear uh, he's ready for uh, their support to be earned, and uh, in his words. And I think that uh, Biden is doing it very much right now. And, and he said, the president of the United Auto Workers said, if you, if you want to support us, come walk the picket line. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road for us. And that is exactly what Joe Biden is doing in this uh, rather shocking move. So, but, you know, memories can be short. Do you think that these trips this week will make any difference next year when voters are actually going to vote? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, 
The real issue, I think, is whether this is the beginning of a rolling shift uh, that might culminate in a year from now in a kind of more economic agenda for the American working class, uh, which we haven't really seen for quite a long time. Uh, Labor's vote has been presumed by the Democrats, but there hasn't always been that much of a payoff. In this particular instance, we might be seeing much more of a shift towards a, an economic interest uh, within the Democratic Party and within the within the working class. And uh, I think that would be an exciting historical move back to kind of sort of where we were before the 1970s. Okay. That is Professor Jefferson Cowie. And I, I want to mention he won the 2023 Pulitzer Prize in History for his book, Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power. Congratulations on that, Professor Cowie, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Your neighborhood, or a neighborhood near you, may soon be getting more trees because the Biden administration allocated more than $1 billion to plant trees in all 50 states to help with extreme heat and air quality. Turns out not everybody's a fan of trees, though. Andrew Rabb runs the Parks and Recreation Department in Buffalo, New York. People have a negative feeling about trees. Oh, they just drop branches, or they're growing into my house, or they just are in the way of for me to park my car or something like that. Rab plans to use some of his city's money to teach people about the benefits of trees. How we're looking to use these funds is not just to plant trees, because you can stick a tree in the ground, but trees are long-term commitments. It's really to also increase awareness and desire to have additional trees in people's neighborhoods. And for the residents of Buffalo, who already love trees, there's a hotline. If people do want a tree in front of their house, we will plant a tree. Right now, anybody in Buffalo, any resident in Buffalo can call 311 and request a tree. In Los Angeles, the not-for-profit group Tree People is also working with local communities. The senior director of forestry, Marcos Trinidad, says that a lot of consideration goes into what type of tree is planted. We make sure that we're not planting trees that are going to grow 60 feet tall if there are overhead lines. If you only have a four-foot parkway, we look at a set of tree species that will not grow large or are not known to have intrusive roots that are going to uplift the sidewalks. If you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? If you were a space for a tree, what kind of space would you be? In any case, he says urban forestry matters to the planet. We're planting these trees as if our lives depend on it. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. The Salem chapter of a historic magician's organization is facing a shortage of members. WBUR's Andrea Shea tells us what they're doing to drum up new recruits. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. 
powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Congress has until the end of the week to pass a spending plan that prevents a partial shutdown of the federal government. A group of conservative Republicans in the House is still pushing House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for sharper cuts in spending. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says a shutdown would affect many government programs, including WIC, which helps millions of low-income women, infants, and children. Nearly 50% of all young children in the country participate in this program. When there is a shutdown, within a matter of days, benefits are cut off to these families. And that's an unfortunate circumstance because it compromises nutrition and health and obviously impacts and affects those families in a very real way. Bill Sack was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Thousands of people in Nagorno-Karabakh continue fleeing into Armenia. The exodus began when Azerbaijan's forces defeated separatists who've governed the region for decades. Edmund Marikian is Armenia's ambassador at large. He says more than 13,000 people have sought refuge in Armenia. This is going to become a big humanitarian crisis in Armenia. And I think we will, uh, for sure, we will need uh, international support. He was speaking to the BBC. Meanwhile, an explosion at a crowded gas station in Nagorno-Karabakh left at least 20 people dead as people tried to fuel up. This is NPR News. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. With deaths, deaths from opioids on the rise, Massachusetts is funding an overdose prevention hotline. Callers are monitored while using drugs alone, and they receive assistance if they overdose. WBUR's Martha Beebinger reports. The money will help expand a helpline run out of Boston Medical Center. Public health leaders say it's the first such investment by a state. People preparing to use drugs give staffers their address. If the caller stops responding after they've used drugs, the helpline staffer calls 911. Stephen Murray is the helpline director. People who use alone are at extremely high risk for fatal overdose. This hotline seeks to uh, close that divide by offering people a safe space to use on the phone with somebody who can get them help in case of an emergency. Helpline staffers have monitored nearly 600 injections or other types of drug use and called EMS for eight overdoses so far this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are calling on the Fed to prepare for climate change. The two lawmakers say any environmental crisis will also become an economic issue. They've signed on to a letter outlining steps Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen can take to mitigate the risk of climate change to financial institutions. A pair of ticket stubs from one of American history's most infamous events was recently sold by a Boston-based auction house. RR Auction says the front-row balcony tickets to Ford's Theater on the night President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated went for more than $260,000. The auction house says the tickets would have cost around 75 cents back when they were originally sold in 1865. It's 833. 
WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets, on stage October 5th to the 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Red Sox begin their final home series of the season tonight. They'll host the Tampa Bay Rays at Fenway. Also tonight, the Bruins visit the Buffalo Sabres for an exhibition game. A slight chance of showers this morning, otherwise overcast with highs in the low 60s. Tonight we'll have lows in the upper 40s, and it'll still be partly cloudy. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Here in Washington, lawmakers return to the Capitol with just four days to go until the country faces another government shutdown. If it happens, it would be the fourth such shutdown in the past decade. The last one was in 2019. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he remains hopeful that a short-term funding bill can be passed before the deadline. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis joins us now. Susan, good morning. Good morning. How does this keep happening? (laughs) You know, this situation is unique in that it wasn't supposed to happen at all, Steve. If you recall, House Speaker McCarthy and Joe Biden cut a budget deal back in late May. It raised the debt limit for two years and set spending targets for the same time. The goal was to get us past the next presidential election without any of these kind of standoffs. Mm -hmm. Within days of that being signed into law, McCarthy essentially walked away from the deal under pressure from the right and said he would pass bills at lower target levels. The Senate upheld their terms of the deal, and since then, McCarthy has been trying and failing repeatedly to try to prove that he can pass things on Republican votes alone. Okay, Republican votes alone. Very narrow majority, so he has to keep all almost all the Republicans together. But, I, you know, just, just a guess. It could be that there's 400 of the 435 votes in the House to pass at least a temporary extension. Why doesn't McCarthy just ask for some Democratic votes and go ahead. He still could. You know, so these stopgap bills are routinely passed with bipartisan support. The vast majority of lawmakers on Capitol Hill do not want to be in this shutdown scenario. But doing so for McCarthy also opens up a very real risk that a member from the far right, most likely Matt Gates of Florida, because he's been the loudest on this, would try to introduce a resolution to throw him out of the speakership if he aligns himself with Democrats to try to pass these spending bills or even a stopgap. Okay, I, I get this. I remember when McCarthy was elected speaker, he had to give his critics uh, the power to more easily oust him. But I really have a question here. Are we really heading for a shutdown? Based on what you said, are we really heading for a shutdown because Kevin McCarthy wants to keep his job? You know, I can't presume how he navigates out of this, but it is absolutely true that Congress has got itself into this point because of leadership decisions he has made, and his leadership could be on the line, depending on how all of this shakes out over the course of the next weeks and months. I think this is all why Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has taken a very different view of this. He said just last week that shutdowns have historically been, quote, a loser for Republicans, and I think that view is shared pretty widely by Republicans on Capitol Hill. But McCarthy, even in a private meeting, dared his colleagues, go ahead, get, uh, submit the resolution, you know, try to fire me if you can. Why doesn't he just tell them that and then go ahead and do what he thinks he needs to do? 
You know, a lot of times on the Hill, four days sounds like a short time, but in these shutdown standoffs, it can still be a lifetime. I think a lot of times leadership likes to prove they exhausted every option before the most realistic one has to pass. And the most realistic one is that a stopgap spending bill in divided Washington will need both Republican and Democratic support to get through a Democratic Senate and be signed by a Democratic president. You mentioned McConnell having a different opinion of this. And of course, Senate Republicans have cooperated with Democrats and done their job. Are there some House Republicans who think that a shutdown be politically good for their party? There is a small number of fringe hard right Republicans who do not think that the politics of a shutdown would be that bad. These Republicans tend to represent very conservative districts. Bob Good of Virginia is one Republican who has very publicly said, I don't think a shutdown would be that bad for us. That's a fringe view. I do not think that that is a majority view of either Republicans or any lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Shutdowns also tend to be very bad for the economy. And I think Republicans campaigning are trying to present themselves as the party that is better for the economy. NPR's political correspondent, Susan Davis. Sue, I hope you get sleep when you can over the next few days, since there might be some nights when you don't. Thanks, Steve. Okay, ever since Donald Trump's failed effort to overturn his election defeat in 2020, we've heard stories about threats and harassment for local officials who run elections. It's becoming clear that many of these officials have decided they just don't want to put up with that anymore. A new report out today says that in some states, more than half of the local election officials have left their jobs since 2020. Wow. NPR voting correspondent Miles Parks has that story. He's in our studios, Studio 31 here in Washington. Good morning, Miles. Hey, good morning, Steve. What are the facts? So this group, Issue One, which is a democracy-focused advocacy group, has basically been tracking since 2020 election officials leaving their jobs. And they looked at Western states, the 11 states that make up the Western United States, and found that half of voters live in a jurisdiction where the chief local election official will be new in 2024 compared Mm. to 2020. And that is almost certainly tied to the environment changing, specifically around election conspiracy theories. Okay, when we hear uh, more than half of officials in some states have left their jobs, what are you hearing from some of those people? Yeah, I talked about it for a while with Josh Daniels, who ran elections in Utah County, Utah. He's a Republican. But he decided not to run for re-election in 2022, specifically because of these election conspiracies. He said... He spent hundreds of hours over the last couple of years researching and debunking these sorts of theories that just kept popping up from voters. It really was like, you know, the twilight zone of government service, Groundhog Day, as it were, that every day you wake up and it's the same thing over and over again. It doesn't matter how much information and data you share. It doesn't matter how many concerns you answer there will just be a new group of critics to, again, dish out the new conspiracy of the day. Uh, I'm thinking about this guy's location because he's in Utah, which is not the most Trumpy of states. Uh, But I guess if you have even 100 or 1,000 conspiracy theorists in your state, uh, that can keep you really busy. Are there places in this country where it's even worse than in Utah? What we seem to be seeing is that it's worse in places where threats are the worst. That's swing states, places with competitive districts. In Arizona, 55% of the local chief election officials will be new in 2024. In Nevada, that number's 59%. Mm. Kim Wyman is the former Republican Secretary of State of Washington. I talked to her about this. She told me basically, county clerks gritted their teeth, pushed through 2020, in a lot of cases through 2022, but that this is not a sustainable work environment. She got emotional talking to me about it. 
everybody kind of hunkered down and you just began to believe it was just you. And I think now, three years later, we're talking about it and we're realizing we went through trauma. You have to remember, Steve, these county clerks are often not paid very much money. And a lot of times they have other responsibilities in addition to running elections. So then you add in this threat environment and it's just too much for a lot of people to take. What does all this mean for 2024? Well, you know, people in new jobs make more mistakes. So what I kept hearing from experts is that they expect new clerks to make more human mistakes. In a normal election scenario, there are all sorts of checks and balances to make sure those mistakes don't translate to results. Sure. But nowadays, you know, human mistakes can mean more conspiracies. Oh, something went a little wrong. It didn't actually matter, but it's going to be grist for someone to talk exactly. about. Exactly. Miles, thanks for coming by. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. That's NPR's Miles Parks. This is NPR News. If you're new to Boston, thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. We're Boston's NPR news station. You'll find updates at the start of every hour, along with more context and nuance than those alerts on your phone. Listen every day here on 90.9 and on the WBUR app. Coming up in 10 minutes, a possible government shutdown is looming, and the Marketplace Morning Report will tell us what that actually means and the impact it'll have on the economy. It's 842. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at mcleanhospital.org. And Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house October 1st, buacademy.org. Overcast and low 60s today with a slight chance of showers this morning. Still partly cloudy tonight as it falls to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, mostly clear skies on temperatures in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Salem has long been a mecca for magic. Master of Illusion Harry Houdini famously escaped from a jail cell there back in 1906. Now the local chapter of a historic national magician's organization, once led by Houdini himself, is facing a shortage of members. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more on the group's campaign to woo new recruits. At dusk in Salem, a pack of magicians gathers around a long table in a conference room not far from Houdini Way. They're at the ready with rubber bands, decks of cards, props, and a cute brown rabbit. Peanut actually does a card trick. Bill Jensen is president of the Society of American Magicians, Witch City Assembly 104. We're a group of men and women who meet together to uh, talk about magic and do magic for each other. I, I have a trick right here I can show you if you're interested in seeing it. I have four kings here. <laughs> Name any one of those four kings. 
Jensen, a retired postal worker, is a hobbyist magician. Other society members are professionals. We have some people that are clowns. We have some people that do balloons, uh, bubbles. It's entertainment, and I enjoy entertaining people. I get a big thrill out of it. I never tire of it. Peter Jackson does stand-up family magic shows with Peanut the Bunny. He's also the club's treasurer and a member of 30 years. You know, at one point, we had as many as 60 active members. The National Society of American Magicians is the world's oldest magic organization. It was founded in 1902 and boomed while Harry Houdini was president between 1917 and 1926. The Salem Assembly's charter was granted in 1975. They've held monthly meetings and hosted lectures with luminaries for decades. But, Jensen says, a perfect storm of of factors is contributing to a drop in membership. People are so internet focused now that they're going online and they're learning things and what they're missing out on is the in-person mentoring, the nurturing. Jensen also points to the pandemic's shutdown of gatherings and the shuttering of magic shops. Now the group plans to prove why their art form is best face-to-face, -face, when or if some newbies show up. You don't want to expose all, the, all your secrets, but you want to give them a little taste of something so that maybe they'll come back another time. And then as you move up into the group, we have people who do everything from just a, a basic card trick to sawing somebody in half. One way for this whole club to die out is if we don't get new magicians. If we don't train new magicians, we don't have younger members to keep the club alive. 36-year-old Kaylee Moulton joined six years ago and says the society gave her the confidence to pursue a career in magic. She's watched as the ranks of largely older gentlemen have dwindled. Then, Alakazam. We apparently have a couple of people that are interested, because here's uh, at least one anyways, huh? A young neophyte walks through the door with his dad. My name is William McLaughlin. I'm 12 years old. I started doing magic because I f was looking at Dan Rhodes on YouTube Shorts, and I just saw one of his tricks, and I slowed the video down, and I decided to do some of them on my own. McLaughlin says he's been searching for people to do magic with and learn from in Rockport. One by one, the Salem Society's magicians regale him with their tricks. So, Will, do you know how to shuffle a deck of cards? Not that good. Well, that's okay. This is a good learning experience. There's a faro shuffle, an overhand shuffle, an underhand shuffle. There's the show-off behind the back shuffle. So when I have you shuffle the deck or I shuffle the deck, it doesn't matter. I don't need to know what that card is. 15, 16, I want to know what this card 18, is on the bottom. 20. That's my card. No seven of spades. 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, Will's card goes halfway in the middle. With one hand, I push in, give it a shake. You see that jump? That was five years of practice, guys. Come on. There we go. Look. Thank you. Thank you. Magician Steven Silva grew up in Salem and performs at corporate and family events. Even though he lives an hour away in Acton, Silva recently rejoined the society to help boost membership. Magic is a very old profession. COVID definitely put a hold on a lot of professional magicians' careers temporarily, but I think that we're recovering, and, and as a club, we're going to recover it as well. Silva says the magic bug bit him when he was McLaughlin's age. He suspects the potential initiate will join. I think he's hooked. 
Well, I did like all the magic tricks, and I'm still wondering how some of them are done. To find out, McLaughlin and his dad say yes, he'll sign up for the Society's Youth Program. When you're in a room, it's easier to like realize how these tricks work. To our two audience members, thank you very much for coming out tonight. Um, Stars of the show right there. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get your information and hopefully we'll see you again. That would be fantastic. Society Vice President Anthony Ganji and President Bill Jensen say it's okay they only nabbed one new member here. They have faith more people will materialize for their next recruitment event. It's tomorrow night at the Beverly Public Library. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the humanitarian situation inside the disputed Armenian enclave in Azerbaijan. Plus, the questions raised by the use of AI on Spotify. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival, presenting Art at Night, an evening of satirical comedy, film screenings, award-winning performance poetry, groundbreaking art installations, and more this Friday. Reserve your tickets now at cambridgesciencefestival.org. The Pacific Ocean is rising. The coastline is not supposed to be a fixed line in the sand, but the way we have built our environment, the way we have settled the coast, basically assumes that the sea is not supposed to change and that we're not supposed to move with the ocean as it moves inland. Lessons from coastal California for everyone living on the edge of rising oceans. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. President Joe Biden joins striking auto workers on the picket line in Michigan today. Hunter Biden is suing former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, alleging he attempted to hack his electronic devices. And a new report from the International Energy Agency finds there is still time to limit the impact of climate change as more people switch to renewable energy sources. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic. Artful. Accomplished. When video game characters also consider going on strike. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity helps investors understand who has the best relationship with their next investment. Affinity knows. Affinity.co slash marketplace. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First President Biden is due in Wayne County, Michigan, near Detroit today to join with picketing United Auto Workers Union members. Democrats could once count on consistent support from the UAW, given the long tradition of the Republican Party supporting business. But tomorrow, Donald Trump makes his visit to Michigan to deliver a speech to current and former UAW members who prefer the Trump approach to some issues, including immigration. Joining us from Ann Arbor this morning is Eric Gordon, a professor at the University of Michigan. Michigan's Ross School of Business. I asked how this might go for the president. 
feelings out here are mixed. Um, I rubbed elbows with some auto workers, and some of them are very excited uh, that the president of the United States might walk the picket line. They might get a photo op with him. Others a little more skeptical. Even if his heart's in it, they're going to be some doubters. And then a visit from presidential hopeful Donald Trump the very next day. Tomorrow, also likely to uh, get mixed reactions from auto workers. Yeah, that'll be exciting because there are some auto workers who very much support Mr. Trump, and there are some auto workers who are adamantly against him. Says a lot, right? Given the fact that the Democratic Party has been seen as the traditional supporter of the labor movement, life is more complicated here in 2023. It certainly is, and the Democrats will lose Michigan, as they did in 2016, if they take the labor vote for granted. And the president of the UAW is playing that like a fiddle. He has said, wait, 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 don't count on my endorsement. I want to see how much you do for us. On this theme of labor relations here, the Writers Guild, big progress, possibly resolving their strike soon. Performers, sag after union, not progress. And there's word overnight that members of the SAG-AFTRA union have authorized a strike against another industry. What one was that one? That's the gaming industry. Uh, huge industry, actually more revenue than Hollywood itself. And you'll notice a theme here. The theme is technology threatening workers. So it turns out that the people in the union who are voice actors in games and the motion actors who put on those funny suits with the sensors, um, they're worried about technology taking their jobs. Kind of funny, games, a techno industry where there's a change in technology that could make it even more techno and more threatening to workers. Okay, so not a strike, but a strike authorization against 10 major game companies. Eric Gordon, a professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Always good to catch up. My pleasure, David. A disclosure, many employees of this program, Marketplace, are members of the SAG-AFTRA union but have a different contract and are not on strike. The Ford Motor Company says it is freezing construction on a new electric vehicle battery plant in Michigan. This comes amid the strike that targets Ford, GM, and Stellantis Jeep. The union had said it was making some progress in talks with Ford and had spared that company from a recent escalation of strike actions. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer is following this. Ford spokesman T.R. Reed says Ford is, quote, pausing work and limiting spending on construction at the battery plant site. Ford announced plans to build the facility earlier this year in Marshall, Michigan, west of Detroit. Reed says the construction pause will last until Ford is confident about its ability to competitively operate the plant. He added that Ford hasn't made any final decisions about the planned investment there. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain issued a statement calling the pause, in his words, a shameful, barely-veiled threat by Ford to cut jobs. The union did not include Ford in an escalation of the strike to auto parts distribution centers last week. It's not clear if Ford's decision to pause the battery plant construction is related to the strike. In his statement, Fain says the UAW is asking for what he calls a just transition to electric vehicles. The union wants to be able to organize workers at the battery plant. The factory involves a partnership with a Chinese company, which would supply some workers and equipment along with battery technology. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. Shall we do the numbers? 
down. S&P, Dow, and NASDAQ futures are all down in the four to five tenths of a percent range. The benchmark 10-year interest rate is down this morning, back below four and a half percent. We'll get a fresh reading on consumer confidence later this morning. Analysts expect a tad less confidence for September. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Federal workers and the wider public who use government services are bracing for a partial government shutdown that could occur this weekend as Saturday turns to Sunday. But what does partial mean? Marketplace's Kimberly Adams reports from Washington. The official term for where Congress is headed is a lapse in appropriations because the bills Congress would have ideally passed by now appropriate funds to run the government. But the government doesn't completely stop running when that funding runs out. Matthew Lacombe teaches political science at Case Western Reserve University and says it's kind of like an electricity brownout where the service isn't gone, just scaled back. Plus, some parts of government have to continue. There are mandatory programs, uh, most notably Medicare and Social Security, that aren't funded through the annual appropriations process, and so those can continue on. Other programs, like SNAP food benefits, for example, have some buffer funding, while others, like WIC, a program for mothers and children, could face cuts right away in the event of a shutdown. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. And a report from the credit rating firm Moody's is now warning that a federal government shutdown could prompt a downgrade of America's AAA credit rating, which could make already more expensive government borrowing more expensive still. Our producers are James Graham, Ali Dalbertanson, Nick Perez, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen Morby. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gore Place and their handmade for the holidays outdoor craft fair. Shop small and local for more than 30 makers this Saturday in Waltham, goreplace.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu slash together. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.